stream. All right, hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Letter of Law Interviews. My name is Sarthak Bharadwaj and in the eighth episode of this interview series, I am absolutely thrilled and delighted to be in conversation with Mr. Apar Gupta. Uh, if you're watching this video, chances are you probably know all about Sir and seeing Sir's name on the video title is why you've probably clicked on the video. But if you don't, I'll very quickly introduce Sir. Sir is of course a lawyer. He's also the founder and the executive director of the Internet Freedom Foundation. He is also an Ashoka Fellow. He has authored a book on a commentary on the Information Technology Act and has recently been added to BW Legal World's list of 40 under 40. Sir, I'm so honored and privileged to be in conversation with you today. Thank you so much for taking time out and being here with me. Sartik, thank you so much. I'm uh, sharing that honor and privilege for um, all the audience which is tuned into um, this and giving up their time. Also, thank you so much for providing me this opportunity. Please feel free to address me as Apar. All of my colleagues um, call me Apar. And I think that breaks the bounds of hierarchy and formality, which are unduly uh, uh, present there in the legal profession. Um, but it's up to your comfort. Um, uh, but uh, people usually just uh, refer to me as Apar, and that's good by me. Um, uh, excited and looking forward to this conversation. Great. Uh, thank you, Apar. Actually, it's, it's, uh, it's nice of you to address that uh, there, there's a lot of hierarchy within the legal system. I think as students, we've all witnessed that when we go for internships and uh, other such places. You know, uh, so apart to start this off, although we have been in lockdown for over a year now and a lot of work has come to a yeah. grinding halt, yet yeah. the kind of work that you are involved in, digital rights and internet freedom, I think yeah. its relevance has only grown in these times. So how have you been keeping yourself busy? while all of us have found a little bit of extra time on our hands, what are the kind of things that, you know, you've been involved in, how you've been keeping yourself busy and what's been going on? So um, I'd like to give a perspective, which is a bit of broader than work because yeah. uh, personal health, wellness has been a co-factor, which has impacted people's work cycles as well. Uh, keeping that in mind, uh, I think uh, maintain a, a degree of discipline in terms of my sleep cycle, regular exercise, having a balanced diet has definitely helped. Uh, um, and also having a very positive uh, collegial atmosphere with colleagues, some of them who are in their mid to early 20s has been excellent. Um, in some ways, I think it's work which has kept us going, which has uh, helped us overcome uh, the sense of captivity um, uh, during this pandemic in which our freedom to um, physically congregate, uh, meet members of our uh, family or just attend classes, you know, that spatial comfort which we get by seeing a person in, in person, um, uh, which is nowhere near the experience of a Zoom call, irrespective yeah. of uh, us uh, trying out Zoom parties fairly early on during the lockdown. And now, um, if you mention a Zoom party, um, <laughs> uh, it would be a party of one. So, <laughs> kept us going. digitization has increased tremendously over this period of time because the remote learning 
as well as internet access as a method to conduct business, um, work with colleagues, but also um, ensure that we can be in touch with our friends and family has uh, deepened our dependency on digital communication platforms and devices. Thankfully, it's not only now restricted to elite and privileged sects of Indian society. There's a greater amount of democratization happening uh, with cheaper smartphones and availability of high-speed internet. However, there are complications which are accompanying that. Uh, it's still primarily based on a person's financial ability mm -hmm. rather than a universalized access. Secondly, that universalized access, uh, when is it um, still a distant dream? People who do have access at present negotiate it with varying forms of surveillance, uh, breaches to their personal um, privacy uh, through vast pervasive collection of um, their personal data, uh, which remains without regulation, yeah. blocking of websites, network neutrality violations, uh, internet shutdowns, um, also um, social media toxicity, online abuse. Um, there's a wide area in of engagement because yeah. as our lives become much more closely connected with the internet and digital communication technologies, technologies and the governance frameworks for them still are in a process of evolution and even first principles for them sometimes need to be set. That's actually very interesting about, uh, about the, the, the government's interference with uh, the internet rights and how greater digitalization uh, hasn't actually been equitable. So we will talk about all of that, but first uh, I want to talk a little bit about you and you know get to know you better and help our viewers to know you better as well. So uh, Appa, why don't you start by telling us about you know um, how you first got interested in law and uh, how your law school journey was like. I know that's going a little too back, but I think that's the right place to start. Uh, this may be a little self-indulgent as well. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but I've always been fairly transparent about my own journey. Um, because um, when you gave my introduction, it was primarily about the successes that I had. I'd like to tell people also that uh, the journey has been one of um, uh, crippling failures, but not regrets, because they've given me a sense to reconsider, pause, and come back. Secondly, it's an outcome of tremendous amounts of social privilege in which I come from a economic um, uh, background, which has uh, tremendous comfort. I come from a business class family. Yeah. I've been well-educated in English medium schools. And a lot of people uh, are not having these same privileges. Even people who are in law school right now, elite law schools, they've overcome tremendous barriers. So Definitely. here's a shout out to them and what yeah. they are doing. And just to let you know that uh, despite these privileges, um, it's incredibly tough and challenging, but uh, my privilege makes it easy to negotiate it. And for a lot of people, it does not exist. So please do reach out. Um, I don't have um, a tremendous amounts of time, but wherever I can help, I offer help. Um, in terms of my own law school journey, I picked up the law because I had a stammer in school. Um, so I firstly got into debate competitions as a method towards improving my own levels of self-confidence. 
as well as grasp over the English language. Um, I used to practice in front of a mirror, uh, debating on a topic uh, which I had read through the op-ed pages of uh, the Hindu or articles from Frontline uh, or the Indian Express, again, the op-ed pages. And speaking on a subject which may sound fairly neurotic in front of a um, uh, in front of a mirror and practicing uh, elocution, and um, there uh, and subsequent from that, uh, getting into the debate team. I was always into athletics, uh, swimming, uh, etc. So a lot of those compliments came in, uh, and uh, I gravitated towards the law. Um, Factoring in that public elocution with the opportunity towards making a living is something as a core skill within the law, not recognizing it comes with so many other areas. So yeah. that's what got me started. I gave my law entrances. I was successful in certain uh, gaining admission to certain law schools, um, which are now national law schools, well recognized in 2002. But at that point in time, uh, again, this is a product of my family background. Being based in Delhi, um, uh, we have a fairly large family here. And um, uh, just seeing the level of comfort I would get and also being a, a first-generation professional, I decided to remain rooted in Delhi. So the law school, uh, which was there at that point in time, and these were early days. Yeah. This was around 2000. In 2002, I take, took admission in Amity Law School. I missed out from National Law School by about 0.25 marks. I was, excuse me, ranked 65 and counseling went up to 63. And during the first few years of law school, I took it rather personally, but in the longer course of time, I don't think so that matters if you keep um, working at it. And I uh, invested a lot of my time and energy, not only towards scholastic achievement, but in the early part towards moot court competitions, uh, which again come with their own sets of complications. I think they promote a level of egoism and sometimes uh, um, unhealthy behaviors, uh, which I did not recognize at that point in time. I'm saying all of these things because I want people to know I'm very imperfect, I'm flawed, I'm not a, a great example of a professional in a lot of ways. Uh, and that's there with most people you would look towards um, who would be um, quote unquote termed as successful or uh, 40 under 40 or 30 under 30. So I want people to know very transparently that our own journeys are ones of failure of challenges despite privileges and for those who don't have it, it's more cute. Secondly, that uh, it comes with a degree of um, emotional growth and maturity, which takes place over a period of time. So you have to also be gentle with yourself. Definitely. I think because, you know, sir, a lot of our viewers right now are, are students. I think they take a lot of comfort in knowing that uh, even though you aren't in a top law school, as many of us, as most of us are not, you can still have it good. And I think Apar is is a great example of that. If you just yeah, but you have to keep trying also, and I think we need to keep improving. So you have to be reflective. So uh, uh, prior to me even participating in one moot, I had to participate in eight internal moot court selections because we didn't have a yearly calendar. We used yeah. to participate in Dubai moot, 
and that really helped me my seniors in fact took a keen interest in developing me um uh, and my skills and some of them i've had the opportunity of working as a litigator subsequently so i so i had great re- working relationships in law school with people who were 3 to 4 years senior to me uh, the second is uh, my own batchmates and colleagues were very supportive and appreciative towards me and uh, i think uh, uh in retrospect uh, uh it's been others uh, who helped me reach this stage uh, but it's taken a lot of attempts uh, yeah. and it's taken constant skill building and keeping at it as a discipline and again not being narrow minded and selfish about it but um accepting fault uh, towards uh, in fact improving yourself right uh, so sir in in the next stage uh, you you know right after law school you joined a top law firm you worked for a while with karanjwala and co and then yeah. you later moved on to columbia and then you came back to india so what was that yeah. all like you know you, how was the experience of working with karanjwala what made you go abroad and then finally come back in the final year of law school i authored a book on the information technology act i was very set on Uh, going for masters because uh, i went to amity right and by the time i was graduating in 2007 it didn't have a brand a value which uh, was equivalent to the national law schools and i thought over a period of time um, that would impact my professional opportunities and also to be quite honest uh, i felt that i had missed out something in terms of um, scholastic instruction and professional development which may be available with the resources and the kind of faculty which is there in national law schools in retrospect i think self learning is uh, can't be um, there's no alternative towards that uh, even in a national law school having subsequently lectured in some of them secondly um, uh, i was very set on the road scholarship which i didn't eventually get i only passed towards the interview stages and in, in, in the india rounds and then i uh, subsequently didn't make it and but um uh, mr karanjewala was incredibly kind he called me in for an interview after i sent in my resume i wanted to pursue litigation only at a appellate level so um, the first few months in that firm were excellent he uh in fact um um uh, he my book was published uh, when i graduated so he uh, it was on the information technology act mr wadwa also was the publisher who was held or was or kishan wadwa he was mm-hmm. instrumental in promoting that book uh, and uh, mr karanjwala sent copies of that book to a lot of senior advocates in delhi he helped uh, make those introductions i was not that professionally bright at that time uh, to take in and uh, acknowledge the level of support the mentorship which has been given to me i think if a senior is taking interest in anyone or a law firm partner like that um uh, a person needs to be very appreciative especially in the younger years and recognize that more so in retrospect uh, that's one great thing which happened with me uh, he placed me uh, to work with teams which had excellent uh, uh, professionals within karanjwala at that time 
um, uh, some of whom have remained in the firm, some of whom have worked out, uh, uh, who have uh, opened their own practices. I worked uh, across teams in the original side, which essentially means that fresh suits and filings in the Delhi High Court. I also got to spend a large amount of time with the clerks in the firm, uh, from whom I learned um, uh, how do you uh, prepare a um, uh, pleading uh, for drafting, what are the uh, specific processes, how do you study the lists um, in terms of forecasting, which cases are about to come, which cases are not about to come. I messed up a lot of times. I was too arrogant and boisterous uh, about my work product a lot of times. And I only was given more freedom patience and feedback in that form. It was a very healthy atmosphere. So um, uh, it's it's just been an excellent experience working with Karanjawala. Now, given that I had already set on a plan for applying for masters, it was about, and I had been accepted into Columbia as well. Um, I had applied only to about six schools, I think. So Oxford, Cambridge, Columbia, Stanford, uh, Harvard and Yale. Um, and also I came from Amity, right? Um, yeah. And my scholastic achievement record, uh, record was great, but I wasn't the batch dropper, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Columbia was very uh, accepting of me. Uh, it waived its requirement for one year because at the time of application, I didn't have any work experience. At the time of joining, I would have work I experience. See. So um, uh, I went to Columbia, um, I was one of the youngest people there. Okay. Again, uh, colleagues, professors, very, very warm, supportive towards me. Initially, I took courses which are much more structured towards professional development, but then also personal development. I took smaller seminar classes and the ones which have stayed with me are the smaller seminar classes in which essentially you get more time in a smaller class number and there are more assignments on a weekly basis. These were on multiculturalism and the law. And the second one was uh, on legal scholarship because I, I was also interested initially in um, going the academic route, but I decided not to do it because I knew um, that my skills and my aptitude would not be a good match there. I'm much more of a practitioner. At yeah. that time, I envisioned myself as a practitioner who would like to lecture, a much more academic-centered practitioner rather than academic who practi uh, practices as well. Yeah. So that level of identification of inner motivation um, has been something which has been beneficial to me. Journey has not been without complications, yeah. um, not without hiccups. When we look at resumes, it's very easy to say, Acha, Apar did this, then he planned this, then he planned that. And it all seems like a smooth ride. It's not, actually. Okay? And that's what I would like to um, uh, people to know. The reason why I came back is because, firstly, um, I would be a first-generation immigrant uh, practicing law um, in a foreign country and my connection to the law has essentially always been one which is driven, which I discovered later on in my life um, out of public issues, social interest, rather than just commercial practice. So I didn't want the immigrant experience uh, because I feel uh, even though I have somewhat of an anglicized uh, way of looking at 
things uh, and I do recognize that now. Even then, I consider myself an Indian and very um, uh, uh, patriotic towards uh, uh, the calling of the law uh, as a function of nation building. So uh, essentially, um, also I would like to do much more. And I think when you are a first generation immigrant in another country, you're building life for the next generation. Oh, yeah. for your children essentially if Definitely. you ever hope to have children or are, uh, you achieve success at a later stage because you're also culturally adapting yourself in addition to uh, the professional um, uh, setting in which uh, you'll be there of course it's easier in metropolitan cities uh, across the world but still you may face that barrier and of course that kind of culture is not reflected in the larger firms but those kind of opportunities also were a little uh, tough to come by um, specifically in the year that I graduated um, because um, uh, in that year, um, uh, there was the housing mortgage crisis in which um, uh, a core segment of the jobs in the top firms were restricted and there were massive layoffs happening because the financial sector is very closely tied with the legal services industry, especially in New York. Uh, so um, that's, that's more or less uh, my journey uh, out of law school into a firm uh, and then back. Just one thing, when I was in the firm, I was drafting a lot. I was briefing a lot of seniors. It was an excellent experience because Karanjawala had the top briefs from yeah. the top clients and was briefing the top senior advocates. So yeah. I got a very, very good assortment of senior advocates, observing them, how do they conduct themselves um, inside court, in client conferences, and um, I had so many positive uh, traits to pick up from them and learnings to pick up from them. Apar, I think this is a great segue into the next part because when you returned to India, you set up your own practice. And uh, yeah. before, before that, you established your firm, which was then acquired and then uh, practice as an independent counsel. And yeah. just now you were mentioning how you got to interact with a lot of senior advocates while working with Karanjawala. So how did all of that translate into your independent counsel practice? And what was that experience all like? Uh, I, I would say it was a degree of accidents and social acquaintances which worked out. So after I came back to India, I worked at Karanjawala for some period of time, again, uh, about a year. Um, I wanted to complete two years at Karanjawala. I had a very good experience prior to going, coming back. I had not done Supreme Court litigation and uh, Mr. Karanjawala recognized that was an area where I needed to be focused as well. So he was very invested in my professional growth. Um, and so I did that work. And uh, it's, uh, it's important to understand that technology policy, which is now called tech policy and IT law was still fairly nascent at that time. It was, didn't even, it was very embryonic. Yeah. So um, it's not as if it was a viable area of practice. So I was much more of a commercial litigator. Uh, till about three years back, I would say it wasn't even an area of practice in which a person could sustain themselves. Now they can based on all the businesses which have built around it. Mm -hmm. So um, as I was exiting Karanjawala, I thought that I could open my own independent practice. I opened it, but uh, there were no clients. I don't come from a legal background, okay? 
and how do you gain clients you gain clients on the basis of doing work so you have a chicken and egg situation mm-hmm. there sometimes people are lucky um even with my social privileges all i had was a degree of financial comfort which is a lot which is about 80% of yeah. uh, meeting your bare necessities but setting up your individual practice without having steady clients was a challenge so then i partnered with two other uh, colleagues uh, one was a junior from law school mr animesh sinha one was his friend shishangar and we really bonded well together so this is how the firm came about there were some ideas we experimented at that time and, and also that was the time of the boutique law firm okay oh, yes. uh, young people were coming together setting up boutique law firms um trying to scale them up in a way and shishank has done a tremendous job over the years doing that animesh went his own way fairly early on in the advani journey after we were acquired from accendo law partners which is what uh, animesh shishank and i set up together uh, acquired by advanian company which was a much larger firm and this happened because there was a specific arbitration which shishank uh, uh, got engaged on and um, advani was also suggested as a partner a much more experienced partner to do the work on it so two law firms servicing the same client and a fairly large arbitration advani not having a full team in delhi so Adva- mr advani saying that why don't you just open a delhi office or just take over a pre existing delhi office there's not a lot of staff so that's how that shift happened accidentally again <laughs> right um uh, shashank uh, animesh leaves for his independent practice because he uh, uh, wants to be much more of a hands on litigator rather than be with uh, you know much more of a firm setting uh, shashank subsequently um, after establishing uh, advani's delhi's office leaves for surain company which leaves me i'm managing now about eight lawyers uh, being the principal fundraiser and doing all these um, uh, uh, um, legal tasks legal reviews as well and that again happens fairly early in my professional life um it's not a top tier firm it's not a uh, low tier firm it's a mid tier firm yeah. and in certain bands it's fairly top tier in terms of uh, um commercial arbitrations so a lot of work yeah a lot of management a lot of fundraising um in terms of um, uh, the client servicing uh, uh, parts i think that accelerates my learning almost by accident i do miss going to courts as frequently as i miss with um, karanjawala and company and i put certain timelines to myself to transition towards independent practice and this time it works out because i'm older i have much more experience and people know my work yeah that's true uh, so apart it's interesting you know having worked with top law firms going to a top law school later to study abroad and coming out, coming back to india and working on commercial matters so what led you to finally gravitate towards social issues and build an internet freedom foundation to quit you know active law firm practice and 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 build uh, this uh, uh, this rights organization and to uh, advocate for internet freedom and digital rights a few things i think my experience in advani had shown that i have an aptitude at least i was developing an aptitude now i don't think so i was great at it and my colleagues would certify i was fairly poor but i love uh, managerial duties organizational development i built 
organizations in yeah. a way. Um, and um, uh, and the second thing was, uh, I started the Shreya single case. Mm. Uh, I spotted Section 66A, a provision of the IT yeah. Act, because I had written the commentary, right? And then I started yeah. noticing after 2008, the law changed, etc. And I feared there would be prosecutions happening. And there was a lot of writing happening at that time. So I was writing a bit on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also lecturing, etc., uh, which is a natural accompanying towards legal practice, nothing very radical. So I da- started doing the Shreya single case, working with PUCL, uh, working with Mr. Sanjay Parekh, Karuna Nandi, who was seniors to me, who gave me excellent mm-hmm. advice and support. And uh, through that uh, process, I actually discovered that I have a passion for public law, constitutional law, what we call it, um, which is that I never, I think, um, uh, grew out of my second year romanticism of why I went to law school, right? Um, Now the question, big question mark was, how do I do this effectively, number one? And uh, number two, how do I do this in a way uh, in which it's commercially viable, in a way, uh, Mm -hmm. for me? Uh, I can make a living out of it. And this also happens by accident. I have fairly good uh, 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 networks with uh, media professionals. Uh, one of them, Mr. Nikhil Pawa, who runs Media Nama, uh, right after the Shreya single judgment, in which uh, I am now acting for PUCL, which is in March, uh, there's a, a, a consultation on uh, network neutrality. He uh, visualizes, he envisions a large public movement around it, but he needs lawyers like me who know what network neutrality is to write the responses, to design the strategy response uh, with respect to the TRA. And I've been sending comments to the TRA even as a student. Oh, wow. And that gives me, yeah. So, (laughs) uh, yeah, so things also, some parts of my personality have always been weird. I believed in government. I believed in engaging the government for a long period of time, responsibly engaging with institutions, building their... Um, uh, ability and a fairly low degree of embarrassment and shame as to my own ignorance. <laughs> so, you know, um, if I send a comment as a student, it may not be perfect, it may yeah. not be great, but I do engage and I keep improving it. So, yeah. he reaches out to me, Nikhil reaches out to me. We do the network neutrality movement together, in which I work with uh, 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 several colleagues, some of them are stand up artists. Uh, the entire AIB crew or the entire mm-hmm. roster of only much l- uh, louder vetting each script um, uh, for legal risk because oh. uh, they all made uh, videos on network neutrality. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. much more importantly, writing up the responses with two other colleagues, Ambakak and Ramanjit Singh Chima, on what are the responses in the email which are sent by everyone, which is prefaced over a longer document which we make and we uh, do it. Almost as an accident, the network neutrality movement blows up again. Big credits to um, not only Nikhil, but also Kiran, uh, who is at HasGeek, uh, which is the community building and events uh, company out of Bangalore, Mm -hmm. uh, who sets up all the tech. We work fairly closely together, all of us. Uh, That also includes Rohin Dharmakumar, who is the co-founder of the Ken. So there were all these incredible people I got to work with. Um, we lacked diversity, sadly. We didn't have enough women with us. Uh, uh, one person who was 
very core part of this was Rachita Taneja, the creator of sanitary panels, who oh. used to work in Chatka, who told us how to engage with people and wow. build a constant, you know, regular basis. I got to work with this and I consider myself so lucky. Um, so after the network neutrality movement was seeping off, uh, I was still practicing. I was yeah. still doing my work. My individual practice was picking up very, very well. And mm -hmm. in fact, the last year, which I quit individual practice, I conducted at least, I think, so about 75 to 80 uh, briefs for about 30 clients. Oh. Large clients had uh, started coming in. And my practice was commercially roaring. I had yeah. three juniors. I had two clerks. Um, and my clientele was also gravitating towards much more larger Fortune 500 companies. Now, a lot of them Silicon Valley companies. But I didn't want to do that because I'd done Shreya Singer and I'd okay. done network neutrality. And yeah. what that taught me was if I want social change based on the constitutional vision, I need to go beyond even strategic litigation. Because if I'm doing strategic litigation, then I'm limiting my area of action and centering it only towards one arm of government, of the state, which is the judiciary. I ideally need to also get into legislative support and analysis, look at uh, houses of legislature and parliament, uh, engage with government authorities, uh, which are the executive bodies, regulators, but there is no substitute for public movement and understanding literacy around digital rights, which is a greenfield issue. India does not have anything similar to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, to um, digital right, rights wings such as the uh, California chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, Liberty International, Open Rights Group in the United Kingdom, or the European Digital Rights Initiative. We had research bodies right. such as Center for Internet Society, Center for Communication Governance. And if you noticed over uh, uh, about two years back, they were very academically centered. They were not that heavily invested in public uh, communication, constituency building, etc. So that's how I entered IFF with a vision of advancing constitutional values, bridging the gap between public policy and the public. And um, essentially, using the wider set of tools beyond court litigation, which are available towards advancing these goals, setting up public movements and campaigns, building constituencies of literacy, um, then taking all that power in, of the informed crowd and those values towards institutional goals, which can be done systematically through evidence and policy and research, which is already being done by CIS, by CCG, by Internet Democracy, by Aapti Institute, by Tandem Research, by all of these institutions which are starting. And here the vision really crystallized of being Indian funded, membership based, which complements our values. A large part of this came from now the trustees of IFF, who were the founders of the network neutrality movement. I People see. like Ramanjit Singh Chima, Rachita Taneja, Arvind, who is a techie, who's had a startup, which was funded, then managed teams in a large company, again is doing a startup, who comes from IIT and IIM, Karthik, who 
coded the uh, platform. Unfortunately, uh, there's also always over a period of time a certain level of mismatch of vision. So Kiran, who's the co-founder, remain, who remains broadly supportive of IFF, or, um, at that point in time, signified he wouldn't be able to give time. His vision was different towards setting of communities. He exited. And also Nikhil Pava exited in a very public manner. I'm grateful to both of them also because when they exited, they indicated certain faults which have actually inputted into our thinking. And I mean, R is the collective leadership of IFF and helped us actually look at areas in a different manner, more be more community-centric, both with respect to our work, but also with respect to our funding. So this is what we do now. We have a complete strategic litigation vertical. We are rapid response. We engage with the public and we're slowly building a cadre of supporters, strengthen staff, our finances through a transparent and public-based model. Fantastic. Uh, you know, Apar, uh, we can continue talking and I'm really enjoying being in conversation with you, but we do have to stop at some point. <laughs> uh, so, it's up to you whenever you want to stop. No, definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, 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 certainly, certainly. So I was just saying that now I'll come to the final uh, bits of the questions that I have. You know, yeah. uh, so Apar, we, this, this lockdown has really revealed that we are actively moving towards more and more digitalization. And the yeah. same goes for law. We have already seen that, you know, matters are being heard in courts in the online mode. E-filing has begun. Gujarat High Court is even live streaming its proceedings and so on. So in the times to come, Apar, how do you see uh, the practice of law changing? Of course, there are some conspiracy theories which are a little too far-fetched, which suggest that lawyers are, will become redundant in totality and that tech will take over. Uh, but how do you see the practice of law keeping up with tech and changing? So I had a, a very good colleague who joined as an intern. Her name is Tanya. She gifted me a book, The Future of the Legal Profession. It's by uh, that family of uh, academics and lawyers, one of them, uh, Suskind. So I think that describes it very well. What's the future of the legal profession? I think that lower level uh, work will get automated through AI in terms of form filling, etc. So there may have been an impact as processes improve on legal services such as trademark filing, patent filing, etc. They may also get more specialized um, uh, in certain areas. But uh, that's one thing you'll notice happening, like ROC filings, etc. It's already happening, right? Those kind of platforms are building out. Uh, secondly, I think more actionable insights and software-based insights, which may lead to bad code. I'm leaving the value judgments to others, but yeah. essentially um, uh, getting a better sense of expertise uh, in which algorithms will be able to design what are the best arguments a lawyer's need to make or should oh, wow. make um, uh, and before with judges also based on actionable insight through court orders. Um, uh, judges may not like it. A lot of uh, conventional lawyers may not like it, but it may serve a greater degree of value for um, uh, litigants. Mm -hmm. Docketing will increase uh, in efficiency, uh, will clean up hopefully, um, delays will be reduced. Uh, uh, but there'll be a tremendous flip side. This level of digitization which is happening will also cause tremendous amounts of exclusion. Mm -hmm. It may cause a degree of 
injustice as well if it's only procedural and relying on quantitative based outcomes in terms of how many cases get over in how much time rather than looking at the substantive quality of the justice which is so rendered for instance if you're chaland right now in delhi for driving a vehicle you can't substantively dispute it even though it goes to a traffic court True. right True. Uh, and there sometimes um uh, mr huzaifa ahmedi in a, for instance in a uh, interview with baran bench has a uh, quite well set out why physical hearing is a necessity especially in large complex um matters yeah. which are uh, requiring in person um uh, attendance so i think uh, in certain areas uh, uh, physical hearing especially for excuse me large constitutional adjudications as well as for litigants who don't have these traditional facilities or even the kind of social learning if they have this 4g connection on a smartphone doesn't mean that they'll be able to very adeptly navigate this yeah. level of virtual hearings okay so we do need to make it all human centric and keep thinking about first principles the first principles being the administration of justice is not towards efficiency it's towards delivery of justice and efficiency is a component of delivery of justice so it's about justice right and secondly it doesn't need to be a pain uh and third it just doesn't need to be there itself if a conflict exists and can be settled and this is entirely the vision of the lok adalat movement uh it needs to be reflected uh people do, should not be penalized through processes of uh, legal proceedings in civil or in criminal matters so i do think there are a lot of challenges there are a lot of opportunities remote hearings will happen transparency should increase we are walking towards a path which is good but there's a greater concern because we also passing through a very difficult time in history where there's an incredible amount of power consolidation happening this fracture in our society around identity politics there's growing communalization and quite often there's a erosion of trust in the higher judiciary especially around constitutional adjudications because they quite often answer political questions which would put the political uh, executive um, uh, in inconvenient positions and the political executive exercising a great degree of control over the judiciary through informal and formal means because it's fairly powerful and centered at this uh, present moment right uh, and so apar and this is the question you know i usually ask towards the end to all my guests um are there any books movies or anything like that that you would you know like to recommend to everyone that everyone should read these or watch these movies or anything artsy that you would like to recommend to our viewers yeah i'll just make uh, uh... so i watch a lot of movies uh, the marathi movie court is excellent yeah. uh, even though uh, it doesn't describe the legal proceedings in a very accurate manner but it does show that lawyers are human yeah. uh, lawyers go through incredible amount of stress they do solitary jobs and uh, it also shows how the legal operation quite often targets people such as the kabir kalamanch uh the other movie i would recommend which was very influential for me because i come from a generation which is i think so i can say i'm i'm a i'm a early millennial uh, in that sense in uh, people who may be they are called gen z yeah so uh, it's called and justice for all it yeah. picks up on the dalaka song it's a 
movie in which Al Pacino is there and he's forced into a Faustian bargain. And I have a poster of it right here in my room, uh, which reads that the man needs the best lawyer in town. But the problem is he is the best lawyer in town. And Al Pacino is in a jail on a contempt charge and he's a lawyer. Okay. So uh, it speaks to very troubling times. It's a movie on gender justice also. So please do uh, watch it. Uh, it was influential to me in my childhood, um, uh, also towards uh, picking up the vocation of law um, uh, to each their own. And I look forward to also recommendations which others can make towards me. Um, uh, please don't recommend The Good Wife because I've watched all of it. <laughs> <laughs> so Abhar, any any final comments before we conclude this meeting no no thank you um i'm i'm, I'm sorry uh if i was very self-indulgent not this, at all uh, uh, interview process i encourage um younger people to engage with the internet freedom foundation we also have a forum where i'm available our staffers are available um uh, we uh encourage people to come to the forum than just social media because we have we can have sustained conversations there we can write more right and respond genuinely rather than just uh, broadcasting that and the address for that is forum.internetfreedom.in there are a lot of lawyers there are a lot of people who are techies who work in bangalore based or silicon valley companies um, there are academics there so i look forward to conversation there please do reach out to me and my colleagues. We learn from you as much as uh, we um, hope to um, uh, offer our learnings if they may be of any use to you. Great. I will uh, attach a link to the forum in the description section. So be sure to check that out. Uh, Apar, thank you so much for joining me today on this uh, Saturday morning. It was an excellent, excellent conversation and I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for being in conversation today with me. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you.